It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. Many people don't think of writing as risky, but those who have tried to get the attention of editors and publishers know the crushing disappointment from endless rejections and unflattering critiques. Andy Weir was one of those authors. He tried and tried to get his work published before deciding to take matters into his own hands and create a blog to share his work as he created the story we all now know as The Martian. The end result? A worldwide bestseller followed by a blockbuster movie. Many thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Freedom Consulting Group. If you're looking for stimulating work in our national security intelligence sector, check them out at freedomconsultinggroup.com. Today, we'll talk with Andy about what it takes to be a successful science fiction author and how he exposes his characters to risk in order to get the reader's adrenaline pumping. So welcome to the show. Welcome to the Adrenaline Zone. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. It may seem odd that uh, a podcast about people who take risks uh, would want to interview sort of a famous science fiction writer, but we really are interested in all kinds of risk, including the risk taken by characters in fiction. But we'd like to start at the beginning, if we may. So did, did you grow up reading science fiction? And how much did the fact that you had a physicist and electrical engineer as parents shape your interest? Oh, yeah. I absolutely grew up reading tons of science fiction. My father, the physicist, had this huge bookshelf just jam-packed full of sci-fi books. I don't think the man's ever thrown away a book in his life. So I grew up reading baby boomer era science fiction you know, my dad's era. So I was, I grew up with uh, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke, Clifford D. Simak, and so on. That's what kind of defined what science fiction is for me. And of course, my dad was a science dork. My mom was an electrical engineer, really just to pay the bills. She wasn't passionate about it. She's like, this is what I do because it pays money. <laughs> yeah, but dad, dad was all about the science. I know that uh, baby boomer science fiction, when I was in third grade in Virginia Beach, Virginia, my school library had one science fiction book, and it was Robert Heinlein's The Red Planet. Oh, Red Planet's one of my favorites of all time. Yeah, kind of ironic, because we're talking to the guy who wrote The Martian a little bit later on, huh? Yeah, Red Planet also featured people like kind of surviving thanks to photosynthesis. There was one scene where these guys are actually inside of a plant that's native to Mars in, in that book, and they are kind of scared of the dark, and so they turn on their flashlight, and it turns out that's what made them live, because the inside of the plant was converting their carbon dioxide into oxygen for them because they were shining a light on it. They didn't even realize that they'd accidentally saved their own lives. Amazing. So it's funny because I wasn't just reading copies of those old school books. I was reading the originals. The pages were yellowed. They kind of had that, you know, 50s book smell to them. There was an ad for cigarettes at the halfway point back then. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. No, back then in the 50s and stuff like that, juveniles, as they were called, um, science fiction books and anything that was really going to teenagers probably had cigarette ads. <laughs> How the world has changed. Like, it's not just like a loosely thing. It was like, you know, between page 121 and 122, there's just like this glossy ad for cigarettes. Hard to imagine. 
One thing I'm curious, I read something where you started programming computers for Sandia National Labs when you were 15 years old. Now, that, that's pretty impressive. Tell us about how you got into that. It sounds cooler than it is. I mean, I, I had a great time, but it sounds like I'm, I'm like some sort of like child prodigy kind of thing, but it really wasn't. It was, um, so the labs, the Sandia labs had a, like a, a work experience trainee program thing where they would get, I think there was like nine of us total high school kids who were, you know, kids who were interested in science and stuff like that. There was a lot of applicants, of course, but, you know, I was one of the ones who, who won a spot. And uh, it was to be like a, a, a gopher or a lab assistant, you know, test tube cleaner or whatever. And the lab I ended up in, they said like, well, we don't need any of that. But what we do need is someone who can turn raw data into graphs. Back then there was no Excel. There was you know nothing like that. And so they said, here's a book on how to program in C. There's a computer with a compiler on it. First learn how to program in C and then start writing programs to take all this data and process it and also make graphs that display and, and stuff like that. It was kind of cool that that was my introduction to programming. And I ended up being a, a programmer for 25 years. So you could have been perfectly happy just writing software. You didn't start writing hit best-selling science fiction novels. So tell our listeners how you got into writing in the first place and, and how much did your experience writing gaming software impact your science fiction writing? Well, I always wanted to be a writer, even when I was a teenager. And actually, when I went to college, I kind of had to make up my mind after programming computers for several years while I was at Sandia Labs, and now it was time for me to go to college. I was like, well, I actually really like programming, but I've still wanted to be a writer. And I, I had to kind of make up my mind when I went to college what direction I was going to go. And I decided I liked regular meals, so I'd go ahead and become a programmer. So that's what I did as my profession, but I always wrote on the side. Then uh, later on in the um, late 90s, I was working for America Online, and I got laid off when they merged with Netscape. And I ended up getting a bunch of money from stock options because I was forced to sell them at what, at what turned out to be the all-time high of AOL. So I assure you, I would not have made a wise stock decision left to my own devices, but I was just kind of compelled to. Anyway, I ended up with enough money to live for several years without working. So I took a stab at writing. And I spent three years writing a book. It was called Theft of Pride. You haven't heard of it because it didn't get published because it sucked. <laughs> that was actually my second full-length novel. I wrote my first full-length novel when I was in college, and it sucked even worse. So The Martian was actually my third completed novel. But after three years, so in the 90s, after three years of uh, not being able to get any interest in the uh, book, I you know, went back into software engineering. And it wasn't like this sad Charlie Brown music, hang your head kind of thing. I liked software engineering. I liked it. I liked computer programming. So I did that, but then I just started writing on the side for fun. You know, I would write short stories or I, I made web comics and stuff like that. And uh, that was my hobby. And then as the internet got more and more prevalent, I ended up with more and more readers. And eventually I wrote The Martian was a serial that I wrote and was posting to my website a chapter at a time. And I ended up with a bunch of people really into that. And then they, when I was done, people said like, oh, can you make an e-reader version of it so I can just download the whole thing and read it on my Kindle or whatever? And I said, sure, figured out how to do that, did that. Then other people said, I don't know how to download a thing from the internet and put it on my Kindle. Can you just put it up on Amazon so I can get it through their system like, like any other book? And I said, like, sure, I figured out how to do that. It was very easy to self-publish with Amazon. 
And I did that. And then it started really selling on Amazon and became like a Kindle bestseller and then kind of a bestseller in books in general. And that got the interest of uh, agents and publishers and the film studio and everything just kind of like happened all at once. Wow. So we're going to get into some of that dynamic in a minute, but I'm curious, do you, do you think that the onset of the, the internet and your ability to get your creative content out there made a difference in, in your success? Because, because before it was always these gatekeepers through publishers, right? Right. Absolutely. I think I, I would not be here if it weren't for the ease of self-publishing. And basically, it cuts the old boy network completely out of the loop. If you write something that people like, you can put it up directly for the potential readers. And if they like it, they'll tell their friends about it and so on, and you'll, you'll get some traction. So there's no longer the notion of, oh, there's a good book, but it just never gets published. And so you created a, a website of your own to start with, right? Your blog to engage with your readers. Yeah, that stemmed out of my uh, comic. So I made a web comic, which was just a three times a week, silly, you know, a joke per comic kind of thing. And that was fun. And I ended up with like quite a lot of regular readers of that. And then when I decided to end the web comic, because I was getting sick of it, I ended it. But at that time, I had like a mailing list already. And I said, well, I want to write more narrative fiction. I want to get into like short stories and serials and stuff. So that's what I'm going to be doing from now on. And a lot of my webcomic readers said like, sure, we'll hang out and see what that's like. So I started off with an audience. It took me about 10 years to build up my audience just in the digital space. And that was all before the Martian. So did the audience give you any feedback that caused you to modify your story or your characters or anything like that? Absolutely. I had about 3,000 readers, I, which is funny. I had like 50,000 people on my mailing list for the comic I made. But then when I said like, okay, well, here's a mailing list just from a narrative fiction. If you're interested in that, then I, so it was about 3,000 for that. So, I, But I had about 3,000 people who were just reading each chapter as it came out. And I thought at the time that I was writing is seriously niche stuff like that most people wouldn't be interested in science fiction that has like such a an obsessive focus on the math and the science behind things. I assumed that it, it didn't have any broad appeal. So I was writing for like what I thought was 1% of 1% to potential readers. Anyway, my little mailing list of 3000 people were those people, you know, those like hardcore science and math dorks who just love to like run the numbers and, and stuff like that. So I had like 3000 expert fact checkers, all of them would check every claim I made. And so if I made any mistakes, they were on it right away, which was great. And so that the Martian came out being extremely accurate, except for a few uh, violations of physics that I did on purpose for narrative purposes. But I, I will say that I didn't really take advice on, oh, your character should do this or you should do that or, 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 oh, here's a cool thing that could happen. I didn't really take that kind of advice. But the worst of it was when, my, uh, when I got basically how gases separate completely wrong. The whole part where he had um, accidentally filled up the hab with a bunch of hydrogen in my first draft of it that I posted, um, the hydrogen was all kind of up at the top of the dome. And he was trying to basically burn it off like that. And the people said, like, that doesn't happen. It diffuses uniformly in. It's lighter, but it doesn't separate. At an atmospheric scale, it would do that, but not over just a couple of meters. So you're wrong. And so I had to gut and rewrite that whole thing because it was just wrong. 
Well, at least, you know, uh, you learned a lot along the way, I suppose, as yeah. you're doing this. Now, I guess Crown published The Martian for you. And I'm curious, uh, what do you think really got their attention? I think it was just simply the Kindle sales, the Amazon sales. The editor I've worked with on all three of my published books so far is named Julian Pavia. And Julian uh, is the sort of guy who's always out on the lookout for new new talent and stuff like that. And so, you know, he realized early on that self-published works are a good place to check for, okay, you know, it's it's already gone through a few filters. It's like, these are writers that can actually finish their book, and then we'll see what's selling well that doesn't already have a print deal. And so it's like, okay, how well is this selling? That sort of thing. So he saw The Martian was selling really well, and he had an interest in it. And he mentioned it to his friend who was an agent named David Fugate. And David Fugate read it, and he liked it. And so he contacted me and said, hey, do you have an agent? If not, do you want one? Now, back in my 20s, when I'd written Theft of Pride, I spent three years like sending query letters out to agents and getting rejected and rejected. Now there's one knocking on my door. And I was like, okay, yeah, absolutely. You can be my agent. And then he's like, great, because I think Crown Publishing, which is an imprint of Random House, wants it. I'm like, okay, do that then. And then Fox Studios, like 20th Century <laughs> Fox, somebody just cold emailed me from Fox and said like, hey, we want to option the film rights for The Martian. So this is before it was published as a book. This is when it was just... Oh my God. Yeah. And said, we want, we want the film rights for The Martian. And I said, talk to my agent. So my agent said, set me up with a film agent at CAA. And then so my film agent, a guy named John Kassir, was negotiating the deal with Fox, while my literary agent, David Fugate, was negotiating the deal with Random House slash Crown. And all that was going on at the same time while I was a computer programmer. So I'm, I'm in my cubicle fixing bugs and then sneaking off to a conference room to take a call about my movie deal and then back to fixing bugs. So it's a very surreal time. And the two deals, the film deal and the book deal, came together four days apart. So it's like on a Monday, we closed the book deal. And then on that Thursday, we closed the film deal. Wow. So I guess the lesson is have, have an agent. Have an agent. That's an amazing story. <laughs> amazing story. I mean, I know that I'm incredibly lucky and that doesn't happen to most people. If you want to serve your country by being on the front lines of providing critical information to our nation's key decision makers, consider a career in the intelligence community. Freedom Consulting Group offers a highly rewarding way to be part of the intelligence community in the private sector. If you're an experienced coder and an American citizen and are looking for a great work environment, job security, and terrific benefits, visit Freedom's website at freedomconsultinggroup.com. How did it feel when you heard it was going to be a movie? Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, so the book deal is what I was really excited about because I'd always, like since I was a kid, I dreamed about seeing blah, blah, blah by Andy Weir on a, in a bookstore, you know, and I still get a kick out of it when <laughs> I see my books in a bookstore. As you should. Yeah. As for the film deal, I wasn't that excited because everyone told me not to be. They said, look, you're going to get like you know, 25000 bucks or something, and that's for you to enjoy. But they're almost certainly not going to make the movie. What they do is they option the rights to anything that might someday be something they want to make a movie to. That amount of money is like a breath mint to a movie studio. They're like, sure, here, just you know, hand it out to everybody who has anything that's remotely marketable so that they can secure the rights before their competitors do. 
So I was basically told by everyone, don't get excited. They're not actually going to make the movie, but enjoy the money that you get. And I'm like, okay. So I was zeroed in on the book and just did not even pay attention to the movie process because I wasn't taking it seriously. (laughs) So then how did it feel when you were told there was going to be a movie and it was going to have Matt Damon and Jessica Chastain in it? Oh my gosh. Well, what happened was there's no moment where you pop the champagne for a movie, it just kind of creeps from being unlikely to being more likely to eventually being very likely to, okay, now we're shooting, you know, now we're, we're filming. And so what happened first was we got Drew Goddard uh, set to direct and write the film. Uh, he started writing the film and then he left the project for a Spider-Man movie to direct that instead, but he'd still written the screenplay. And then the studio was like, oh, now we don't have our director anymore. And it looked bad, although the screenplay was really good. And then Matt Damon was interested in playing the lead. And so the studio was like, okay, great. Now we've got a lead, uh, a big name as the lead. What about a director? And so they put out feelers. Okay, we've got this script with this lead, Matt Damon. Anybody want to direct it? And Ridley Scott said yes. And so... Ridley Scott was set to direct. And once you had Matt Damon starring and Ridley Scott set to direct, then a lot of the big names were very interested in being a part of it. So like Jessica Chastain, Sebastian Stan, Michael Pena, the whole cast. I mean, it's an incredible cast. And once they had all this big cast all set up and everything like that, it started to really be likely. Then next thing you know, they're making sets. and it's like, But it could still be canceled at any time. I guess the moment you celebrate is when they have their first day of filming in the can. So they've actually shot film, you know, filmed a scene or two. At the moment they do that is when they're now committed to all the contracts they have with the actors. Because you've filmed any of it, that means you've activated all the actors' contracts. And so they were going to have to pay, whether or not they finished making the movie, they're going to have to pay Matt Damon his entire salary for the movie, Jessica Chastain, her entire salary for the movie. So once they start shooting a film, they won't cancel in the middle, except for extreme circumstances, because it's cheaper. Even if they regret starting the process, it's cheaper for them to finish the film and, and put it out there to recoup losses, if nothing else. And at this point, you, you, are, you are like out of the loop, right? I mean, nobody's going to Andy Weir going, how do we want Matt Damon to play this role? <laughs> right. Um, I, I certainly, my only job on the film was to cash the check, but they chose to include me in a few things. When he was writing the screenplay, Drew was on the phone with me almost every day. He and Ridley both wanted the film to retain the science accuracy that it had. So Drew was on the phone with me every day. And once the script was done and they were doing the filming, every now and then I'd get a question from Ridley that would go through his staff. It wasn't like he called me on the phone of like, I think I got like one or two questions and they were always just scientific. So he said like, hey, we want to show Watney pouring, you know, hydrazine fuel from one container to another out on the surface of Mars. Like he's in his spacesuit, but he's doing that. Would that work? I said like, no, it would evaporate immediately when exposed to Mars's environment. So he's like, okay. And so if you watch in the movie, what he does is he hooks up a pipe and uh, a tube, like it's a, a hose that goes from one thing to another. And that that's how he like transfers the hydrazine. So really wanted to be accurate. I, I have to tell you that The Martian, that movie is the only one that made me feel homesick for space. Aww. It was, I mean, scientifically accurate, but you also did a good job. I think what really made it, you know, hit me internally is the, the banter between the crew and the dynamic with the ground. 
that felt so on, you know? <laughs> I've been, yeah, I've, I've heard that from a lot of NASA folks and they always say the same thing. How did you get that so right? And the answer is I've been a space dork since I was a little kid and I've watched like every single documentary about everything. So I've seen the, you know, astronauts being interviewed or I've listened to the recordings of like, you know, communications between a space shuttle and, you know, and, and so on. And then I amped it up a little bit. They're not quite as unprofessional in real life as they are, you know, when they're chatting with each other. I mean, I'm sure when it was just you guys talking to each <laughs> other, not on Vox or anything like that, then you were probably like, ah, ha, ha, ha. but like talking to mission control, it's always very crisp and clear. And eh, most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that stuff. And then you might appreciate this. I was told by folks at NASA and JPL and stuff like that, that the most inaccurate part of the book and of the movie is the high level of cooperation shown between NASA and JPL. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, will, I will not comment on that one way or the other. So Andy, suddenly, you know, you said you one day dreamed of having a, a book in a bookstore with your name on it. Now you've got several. Did you feel any... Um, sort of extra pressure, reputational risk, what have you, when you started writing Artemis and Project Hail Mary? Because Martian's so huge, and now you got something you got to live up to, right? Oh, my God. It was so much pressure. I mean, for Artemis, I was I was just like, uh, just imposter syndrome out the wazoo. <laughs> and and I knew, that I'm like, there's no way this is going to be as popular as a Martian. I, I know that. So I was just setting out to say, like, look, I just want to make a book that people say, like, I enjoyed this book. You know, they can still say, oh, it's not as good as The Martian. That's fine. But I enjoyed this book. And that's kind of what happened. I think I, I made some mistakes with Artemis because I'm always trying to grow as a writer. I don't want to just make like, so in The Martian, the plot was hopefully pretty engaging, but the characters were pretty flat. So for instance, you know, Mark Watney, he has a very interesting personality, but he doesn't undergo any change in the novel. He's the same at the end as he was at the beginning. And you also don't know anything about him. When you finish the book, you don't know anything about him. Like other than he's a guy who didn't want to die, which is can be said about most people, right? And he's very clever. Okay. And he's kind of witty, but you don't know like what his plans are for, you know, if he does get home, you don't really know anything about his life before he was an astronaut. You don't know anything. He had no depth. And that's fine. I was going for a plot-driven story. But for Artemis, I decided I want to try harder. I want to make a character, a main character with some complexity and depth. So while Mark was based on the real, oh, sorry, while Mark was based on the idealized version of me, you know, Mark was like all the traits I have that I like about myself and none of my flaws. So kind of witty, snarky, and smart. But then also he's really brave, which I'm not. And he's like magnified. Everything's magnified. He's much funnier than I am. He's much smarter than I am. He's, you know, he's much more interested in science even than I am. But and he's not afraid of things and he's not and he's and he doesn't give up. And he, you know, so just the good parts of my personality, none of the bad. And then for Jazz, who's the main character of Artemis, for the six listeners of yours who've read that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wait a minute. I've, I've read it. You read it? Oh, good. Yeah. No, it wasn't nearly as popular as The Martian. So for Jazz, many people don't believe this when they first hear it, but this 26-year-old Saudi woman is based on my own personality also. But she's more my 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 real self, more my my flaws and and mistakes. 
like her attitude and personality is almost identical to what I was like at her age. And also the recurring theme of just not living up to your potential of like, you're smart and you're not taking advantage of it. I got a lot of that. And, and so, so she was more like the real me. And Mark is more the idealized me. And in the end, it turns out people don't like the real me as much as they like the idealized me. So they had a hard time liking jazz. Also, I made her too immature because I was really immature when I was that age. So people are like, yeah, she's supposed to be 26, but she acts like she's 15. And the main problem is because when I was 26, I guess I acted like I was 15, you know? So a lot of people just couldn't really vibe with jazz as well as they did with Mark. And so I learned some lessons there. It's like your main character can be flawed, but you can't make them unlikable. But it's realistic, right? And I I thought she was incredibly complex character. And it was curious to know how you came about writing her. But now that you just said that, did, was it a little was it a little risky kind of putting your your flaws out there like that? Yeah, absolutely. But I really didn't want to just be a one-trick pony. I mean, I didn't want to just crank out another book of like a resourceful scientist in a life or death scenario, right? I was just like, okay, jazz is clever and resourceful and comes up with good solutions. But also, really, for me, the main character in Artemis was Artemis, the city itself. What I wanted to write is, was basically Chinatown, but on the moon. That that was Chinatown is the main inspiration for Artemis. It's like, okay, the story of what has to happen in the ugly underbelly as a city grows from a small town into a big one. And that's that's what Artemis was all about. And then in Project Hail Mary, every everybody, all the reviews in Project Hail Mary say, Oh, Andy Weir went back to his roots. But I feel like it's the opposite. And the Martian, it's a guy, it's the whole world trying to save one guy. And in Project Hail Mary, it's one guy trying to save the world. I, you know, I saw that in a, in a bookstore when I was getting ready for a trip and immediately grabbed it because uh, I knew it was going to be a terrific book. And so without giving anything away, you know, it's about somebody traveling to another star system, trying to, as you said, save Earth from something really nasty. Uh, but you do some really impressive physics in that book, like in every single chapter. So how much <laughs> extra research did you have to do beyond that, you know, what, which was necessary? Tons and tons and tons of research. And there's a lot of speculative science in there. But for me, that's what I love. I mean, the actual writing is a pain in the ass. I like doing the research. I'm happiest when I have four Excel spreadsheets open in front of me and I'm double checking like, you know, okay, let's see, you know, like, <laughs> what is the wavelength of light of a ship traveling at this rate that's using mass as fuel that now has like, so it'll have a Doppler shift, but how much of a Doppler shift at what time? And so I just, all these things, I went way down the rabbit hole, way further than I needed to go for the book. But I just, I really like the research. <laughs> Do you have like a university professor you go send it to and go, okay, how am I doing here? Well, not usually. Usually I just do it myself and I have a good time with it, you know, so it's fun. It's like, if you like gardening, yes, you could hire gardeners, but you like gardening, so you do it yourself, right? Although I did double check something, uh, again, without too many spoilers, neutrinos matter a lot in Project Hail Mary, and I wanted that science to be accurate. And so I, it turns out by the most ridiculous of coincidences, I had a friend in high school named Chuck Duba, and uh, he and I were lab partners in our physics class, in high school physics class, in fact, and we would hang out and stuff like that. I went on to be me. He went on to be a particle physicist, Dr. Charles Duba, who was part of the team that won the Nobel Prize for pinning down to within a, a very small range what the mass of a neutrino was. Like, 
he knows his way around a neutrino. So <laughs> <laughs> if you can catch one. Handy friend to have. Handy friend to have. So I talked to him a lot about, you know, getting my neutrino physics right. But you, you know, in that book, you also had a relationship between a, an alien and, you know, the, the human hero, which has nothing to do with science. And it really complicated things. Yeah. So how did you come up with that? Well, that was fun because it was a buddy comedy. I mean, that, I mean, I had that in mind from the start of the book, of course. That's the core of the book, although people don't know that until the second act reveal, right? And then it's a first contact book, and it's these two guys who are working together. And that enabled me to do something I've always wanted to do, which is make my own space aliens, where I just start from the ground up and say, like, all right, I'm going to figure out how their biosphere works. I'm going to work upward from there. And then just whatever they are, they are. And they're not remotely comfortable in a human environment, which that always bugs me. I mean, I understand for storytelling purposes, you want to have your aliens and humans in the same room. That's why like all the Star Trek races are comfortable with the same gravity and atmosphere and temperature and yada, yada. But I'm like, nah. So I, I wanted to make an alien that's alien. So we've got a meter and a half high, five-legged, rock-covered spider that never evolved sight because the light doesn't penetrate to the surface of his homeworld. I can't wait to see it in the movie. Yeah, I've been seeing um, some ideas and mock-ups made by like ILM and stuff like that that are going through the movie process. We'll see how that lands. Cool. The uh, directors want to do it with practical effects as much as possible using CGI only for the stuff like that can't really be done with practical effects. Looking for meaningful employment within the intelligence community? Look no further. Freedom Consulting Group's a great place to work and has several open positions for American citizens in the technology field. Technical teams at Freedom focus on using the right technology to create flexible, long-lasting solutions for key clients. So if you're an experienced coder looking for a fantastic position in the world of intelligence, visit Freedom's website at freedomconsultinggroup.com. So here's a question on your writing. You know, I've published a couple of short stories myself, and I found that the only way I could do it is to sort of follow Stephen King's advice, and that is come up with a dilemma and then let it take you where it will, rather than trying to outline the whole thing. What is your approach? How do you? Because you're doing some pretty sophisticated stuff, and you almost have to outline it, right? Well, I generally make it up as I go along. I come up with a dilemma, but I generally try to come up with a dilemma that that can really be milked, you know, like stranded on Mars. Okay, well, there's a lot of ways to go with that. But I guess for uh, The Martian, I actually did just make it up as I went along because I was, um, you know, posting it to my website. And I, in my original mind, like the way I envisioned it was when I first started writing it was the whole book is going to be just his log entries. There were no characters at NASA, nothing like that, none of that stuff. His crew was only mentioned in his log entries. You never saw what they did. And it was like he was going to show up on his own to the Ares 4 landing site and surprise the Ares 4 astronauts there. Wow. And that was my idea for how the ending would be. But the more I worked on it, the more I just kept being pulled away from that sequence of events because I'm like... I just could not see it as plausible that NASA would not notice he's still alive. Like, I just couldn't find any way that that made sense. Because especially when they 
within this fictional setting, they had five Ares missions planned and his was Ares three. So they still have two more. So they still have like this massive focus on Mars. And so they're probably mapping the living crap out of it. And so I'm like, wouldn't they at least look at the Ares three site? And then I'm like, okay, they have to figure this out. And then I realized, okay, that's really interesting to show what people at NASA do and think and say when they realize the guy is still alive, but they can't talk to him. Yeah, and he's growing potatoes. Well, they uh, they didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but I, you know, it must be more fun writing that way because you're discovering it yourself as well, almost as though you're the reader. Yes, but. That's how I wrote The Martian. And then um, after The Martian, when my publisher's like, all right, we want another book, I didn't go straight to Artemis. I actually wrote, I started writing a different book called Zhek, which Z-H-E-K, which was a, a soft sci-fi book about aliens invading Earth and stuff like that. Like I had faster than light travel, telepathy, you name it, right? And so I started writing that. I, I was like, you know, what works for The Martian was me just setting up the scenario and letting it take off. And Jack, I tried the same thing. I got 70,000 words in. For reference, the Martian's about 100,000 words. Uh, 70,000 words in before I realized that it sucked. It was just this meandering plot that wasn't going anywhere. And so I realized I need a little bit more. You know, that taught me a lot. It was painful to shut that down, but it taught me a lot, which is, among other things, other writers can, uh, you know, have their own methods, but I need some structure. That's risk management at its best, right? You Abandoning something that's not working. Yeah, it would have been bad to release that. Either it would have been a massive flop or it wouldn't have been anything like what I'd written thus far. Like it would have been undergone so many rewrites before release that it would have been a completely different story from what I had so far. There's no way that what I had would have been successful. And so fortunately, I ditched that and I ended up writing Artemis because I had had a lot of fun trying to design the city itself. I didn't have characters for it, but designing. Artemis and like, okay, how do you make a city on the moon? Why do you make a city on the moon? What's their economic reason for existing and so on? So I was having a lot of fun with that. And I'm like, oh, come on, Andy, you want to write this. So do it, you know, write this. Hmm. So it's a combination of a little bit of structure with a little bit of permission to wonder a bit and somehow keep it all loosely threaded. Yeah. So for Hail Mary, I had the general sequence in mind for what the book was, but how you get from point A to point B, I didn't, I didn't know when I started writing. I was like, well, I know this major event's going to happen, then this, you know, the first contact, and then this. And I knew what the ending scene was going to be right when I started the book. Like, I knew what the final scene was going to be. And so I just said, like, all right, I start getting from here to there. So, uh, Andy, I, you know, I've always thought, I think a lot of other people would agree that, you know, fiction is vital to technological progress as it sort of gives us the freedom to dream a little bit without the sort of strict accountability of academic rigor. You know, the flip phone foreseen by Star Trek, right? I wonder if you have any thoughts on that, where this dreaming can take us. Honestly, I've always thought that was a little bit overblown. I think that's the sort of thing that fiction authors say because they want to feel like they're a big part of scientific progress. But in my opinion, scientific progress is made by scientists. And it's very, very rare for a science fiction author to come up with something that a scientist hasn't already thought of, even in terms of high concept. Like, for instance, you know, Arthur Clarke, I think, is generally given credit for coming up with the idea of an artificial satellite because it was in his books, or he was the first guy who had a book that had that in it. But I've got to believe some scientists thought of that earlier. It's just that scientists didn't have a megaphone for the masses 
Yeah. The only the only way I would push back on you, Andy, on that is that I think the scientists come up with the stuff, but dreamers like you come up with how the stuff can be used. And I think it inspires people in some ways. And I saw that with one of the short stories that I wrote where I was trying to take a technological thing and show people how it could be used and so dream a little bit. So I, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit. No, I, I agree. Although, where do you go to get some of your, your out there science ideas? Do you read specific journals or you look around the internet, talk to friends? Well, I have just a deep interest in in science. Most sciences, not even just like the ones I write about. Like I'm, you know, interested in biology. I'm interested in medical technology. I'm interested in all this stuff. And so I guess it's just like, you're always knowledgeable in your hobbies. If someone's a gearhead and he's all about cars, he can tell you all about cars, right? So I can tell you all about interesting things going on in science because that's what I gravitate toward. Google has already figured out to fill my newsfeed with like science-related articles and, and so on. And so that's, that's just kind of how I'm wired, I guess. It's, it's what I'm into. Have you had any interactions with people like Sandra that have helped inform your approach to this or has it all been done at arm's length? I would have to say mostly at arm's length because so when I wrote The Martian, I didn't know anyone in aerospace at all. I did get to meet a lot of really cool people in aerospace afterward. Like one of the one of the happiest times in my life was when I got to spend a week at uh, Johnson Space Center, just getting given tours of everything. Like I got to go to the Lunar Sample Lab, put on a bunny suit, hold a rock. They showed me ALH eighty four thousand one, which is the um, the meteorite that they found in Antarctica that they thought had evidence of life from Mars. I have a shergatite of my own, I'll have you know. I have a walnut-sized meteorite that is a rock that originated on Mars. Awesome. Oh, man. It was so much cool stuff. I think my favorite was when I went into the uh, Mission Control Center for uh, for Station, and they let me sit at the Cronus Station and control a camera mounted to ISS, and they put the feed on the big screen. Oh, yeah. We have lots of fun stuff at JSC. I'm glad you got to visit. Oh, man. It was great. And like... Hanging out pretty much all day with Ellen Ochoa. Like, <laughs> didn't expect her. I thought she'd come say hi and then be on her way. But yeah. <laughs> my colleagues and I love the, the Martian. Like I said. <laughs> Home, homesick for space. Are you working on anything new? So my wife and I had a baby about a year ago, a little over a year ago. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, so- Happy Father's Day, by the way. Yes. Yes. My second Father's Day, actually, because he was born just before Father's Day 2021. So I just didn't have time to even think about doing work. I was just, it's just nonstop. And I'm only now starting to kind of like get my head above water enough to start writing again. I've been thinking of book ideas for a while. I think I've got one. Not ready. I, I generally don't talk to people about what my next book is going to be about until I'm really, really sure that's what's going to get released. So uh, on a related note, though, do you have any advice for someone starting out as a novelist or even as a science fiction writer? I've got kind of three bits of advice that I have for um, any would-be writers. Number one is you have to actually write to be a writer. You need to put words onto a piece of paper or into your word process or whatever. It's not enough for you to just think about your story or imagine the cool scenes. You have to start writing the words because it's, in fact, I just experienced this, uh, you know, what, three days ago. I just, I just started writing the first chapter of my next book. Well, what may end up being my next, we'll see. And it's like, everything is awesome in your mind until you start writing it. And then you're like, oh, okay, no, this doesn't work. Oh, wait, no. Oh, this seems clumsy. And then that's when you start to find the problems with your idea. It's 
easy to think a story is perfect when it's in your head, but when you start putting it on paper, that's when you start running into the problems, and that's when you start solving the problems. So you have to write. Just thinking about it is just daydreaming. That's not writing. So that's number one. Number two, and this one's very difficult, is resist the urge to tell your story to friends and family. (laughs) Make a rule for yourself that the only way anyone experiences it is by reading it. And that sounds like weird. And it can be it can be really difficult is especially if they're actually interested. If they're not just like, sure thing, yeah, okay, sounds cool, change subject. But if they're they're like, oh wait, that's awesome. Then what happens? You have to resist the urge to talk to people about it because telling the story verbally satisfies your need for an audience and it'll sap your will to actually write it. Uh so make a rule for yourself that the only way anybody ever can experience your story is by reading it. Yeah, I can see why you would be tempted to do that to see is it working or not. Right, yeah. You don't have to write the whole book. You can write it a chapter and hand it to a friend and see what they think and then get that sweet sweet validation that you crave. But if you just tell the story verbally, then you'll be like, "Okay, I got my dopamine for that. What's next?" you know. <laughs> and then finally, the third bit of advice I'd say is like there's never been a time Since the advent of the uh, Gutenberg Press, there's never been a better time to self-publish. The old boy network has been removed between you and the readers. You can uh, publish directly to them. I definitely advise people to try to get an agent, to try to get a traditional publishing story. I don't think that self-publishing is superior, but it is much, much better than Vanity Press publishing was in the old days. You can acquire an audience and you can become successful. The reason, by the way, that I recommend a traditional publishing over self-publishing is because traditional publishing does more than make books and give them to people. They do the marketing and publicity. They get you on the talk shows. They get, I mean, they put ads out in the places. They make sure that they do the book tours, events. It's, so it's really now publishers and publishers are fully aware of the impact of eBooks on things and stuff like that. So they're fully aware that they're transitioning over to being heavily focused on marketing and publicity for books for their big releases. So I've got one last question. And that is, uh, do you have a a routine? Do do you get up early in the morning and write for a few hours and then give it a break? How do you work that? In the pre-baby days, what I would do is um, (laughs) I'd set myself a goal of a thousand words a day when I'm writing a rough draft. Once I'm editing, I don't really have to force myself to work because I like editing. I don't know. I enjoy the process of editing. It's it's getting that first draft out that's painful. And so I try to write a thousand words per weekday, or more accurately, 5,000 words a week. So if it's Tuesday and I've now written a total of 2,500 words for the week, I'm not encouraged to stop writing if I've got a good thing going because I'm like, ooh, now I'm working on Wednesday's quota, you know. But until I've done that, I'm, I have a bunch of rules that I apply to myself. Like I can't do any of my hobbies, which include woodworking and clockwork and stuff like that. And I also can't watch any form of video entertainment. No TV, no YouTube, no streaming, anything. Those are my rules that I try to apply to myself. Now that I have a baby, it's total chaos. <laughs> I get up in the morning. We got to feed the baby. When the baby takes a nap, I maybe can sneak a few pages in here and there. I don't know. But he's getting older and he's getting easier to deal with. His naps are longer. He sleeps through the night, you know, so 
Well, you you know that your father experience will give you more um, material for your writing. I have no doubt. I'm tapping. <laughs> I'm tapping into that for this next book. I really am. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, Andy, it's been delightful talking with you. I think we could probably talk for hours. It's so fascinating to listen about the hear a little bit about the process and some of the experiences you've been through. And we really want to thank you for. I think when a nerd is talking to an astronaut, the astronaut's probably the more interesting one. But. No, no, I really, personally, I've really enjoyed this and and I have like a million more questions, but we really appreciate you being a guest today and hanging out with us for a little while. Yeah, I look forward to seeing the the movie and your next book, if and when it comes out, right? (laughs) Someday. (laughs) Oh, someday. Thanks so much for having me. Good luck. That was author Andy Weir. I'm Sandra Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Thanks again to Freedom Consulting Group for sponsoring this episode. Do work that matters. Check them out at freedomconsultinggroup.com. Join us back in the Adrenaline Zone next week for a new episode and be sure to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.